Lifestyle matters. It's more than money. I'm Faisal Carbelli, my co-host here, Rob Gary, filling in for Dave Popovich. Rob, welcome. Thanks. Good to be here. I'm glad that you're here. We've got a great show today. Uh, we're going to be surprised. I think many will be surprised about this one piece when it comes to travel mm -hmm. insurance where you may not be able to be insured. Shocked me. And so when we heard about this, we definitely want to talk to an expert on this. Um, and this week, we also had the federal budget come out. Mm -hmm. A lot of conversation about the federal budget. I think people are saying, what applies to me when it comes to this budget? Nothing real shocking from a tax perspective for some. Mm -hmm. But what does this really mean for the average person listening to the show that, that can get some key right. parts? we got our tax expert as well joining us this week was filled with economic uh, information and data that came out this week. What caught your attention in the markets this week? Uh, well, I'll, I'll break it down to two different parts here. Canada, we had GDP number coming out on Friday. The Canadian economy growing faster than expected, creating a bit of a struggle here for Bank of Canada, which is currently paused, right? So... So the economy is growing faster than expected. Now the question is, does that relate to higher inflation or sticky inflation? You got it. And that's where the debate's gonna be on, on uh, the, the interest rates. Mm -hmm. And that will impact to some degree mortgage rates, borrowing and so forth, maybe even bring the Bank of Canada back on to start to raise interest rates. Right. right. What else caught your attention? On the other side, the U.S. side, tons of things going on, right? We have, obviously, the liquidity on the banking side probably probably creating some extra tightening. Yeah. We talked about that last week, so that's going to continue. On the economic front, though, we had uh, inflation slowing, right? We're In not at zero yet. And the bigger one that caught my attention on Friday again was U.S. Uh, consumer spending down, right? So, again... Is it sticky? It's starting to show cracks. Yeah. Right? And what do we talk about? It takes historically 12 to 18 months when they start to raise to have the effects on the economy. So we are starting to see that. Consumer spending report showed uh, a lot less spending on the frivolous items. Cars, big ticket items, consumer confidence, right? That, okay, maybe we can't spend on the bigger items. A lot more on necessities household items. So again, a couple good data points here. Fed doesn't announce again until May 3rd. So a lot more data points to come in before their expected quarter basis hike. On yeah, the next 25 one. basis points or one quarter of 1% is what's expected. Um, when you look at the economic data that's come out this week between Canada and the US, markets looked pretty good this week overall. Mm -hmm. um, not too much about a banking crisis. We were expecting to something to come up from that. It was called the no drama week. The no drama week. Mm -hmm. Well, it depends what you're looking at, right? <laughs> Depending which country you're looking at. A little bit right. of drama in other countries around the world. Absolutely. But we look at Canada, US, not as much drama. But it, it was kind of quiet about the banking issues. Mm -hmm. And that's interesting because something's happening in the background where the FDIC, the governments and so forth, the central bankers, they still want to make sure that the system is still in place, that you're not going to have a bank that's going to fail where they go bankrupt because that would shake or rattle the confidence level 
Right. That could bring a lot of money out, but we're still seeing some American bank depositors move their money. Yeah. And the question always comes out to what about Canada and the Canadian banking system? At this point in time, no issues. No. Nope. No issues. So it's it's interesting how that was kind of no drama week, as you put it. I like that. Um, but it gave the market some confidence to get a little bit of strength this week. Let me kind of dissect a bit when I was looking at the, the markets, um, what really caught my attention and how people need to look at these markets. We as investors in general look at an index. And let me make one, let me bring one up to your attention. The S&P 500. Mm-hmm. The S&P 500, 500 of your largest companies is up, you know, uh, four or 5% um, for the year to date. When you look at an index like the S&P 500, how it's measured is based upon what's called market weight or market cap. Right. The larger the company, the more weight you have in that or more percentage of the money goes into that company. So you're basically buying companies at, that are larger with more of your money. Okay. Mm-hmm. When you look at the same index, the same 500 companies, and you make it an equal weight, you put the exact same percentage or dollar amount in every single company, and you look at the performance differences, the S&P 500 has outperformed the equal weight year to date. Hmm. And so what's the reason for that? And the answer is four companies. The four largest companies have done so well that has pushed the index in the S&P 500 higher than if they were equal weight. So it's not all boats are lifting at the same time. But what was interesting about this week particularly is that what's happened year to date up until last week this time was heavy on those tech companies. What's happened this week, not the case. There's been a shift. There's been other names that have been leading the index in return for the week. And so that's telling us that there's not as much weight on the largest companies, but it's now getting through the market or through the other companies. So when people are investing and they see that the S&P 500 is up whatever percent it is, four, five, six percent, understand the constituents that are underneath it and why it's moving in that direction. That's right. not the overall market. That's a selected few carrying the carrying the, the load. Right. And if those companies have an issue, your index is at, at risk. Interesting. And I think that's what we need to understand when we look at index investing. People don't understand what's in the index, what's the constituents in the index, and how that index is created. Well, all we see it on a daily basis on what they did, right? Yeah, yeah. So... You know, when we look at our, our portfolio, we look at, you know, what are some of the risks in play? Do we still want to have exposure to, let's say, the largest 500 companies uh, in the U.S. slash globally? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. You want to have some exposure there. But how much money do you put in each company? Right. Yeah. And maybe the S&P 500 index right now is not the right index to be in. Or maybe it is based upon your economic thesis which can change on a weekly basis. Which could change. You get a different type of data and things change. So what the market's been saying is we wanna pay for companies that are growing. Okay, we get that sense. We also wanna pay a lot more for the, a, a certain few companies. They're like the, the safe growth companies and it's an oxymoron yeah. to some degree. Um, but these are the things that are happening in the market. So what you're going to expect when you see things like this is higher volatility. And so be prepared that if you're investing in an index 
or you're investing where you put more of your money in a few companies, the probability of higher volatility goes up. Especially with data points. And this is the thing that I think people need to understand is how much volatility you're willing to accept in times as we head towards a potential recession. Right. Are you prepared for that? And that's what I think people don't understand. So having that understanding of what you're investing in is just as important as having your money invested. Fair. That's a great, that's a great point. Right. Understanding what kind of vehicle it is, not just driving the car. <laughs> Good analogy. Right. So that's where we need to, to, to lean towards. So I think that was it. Anything else caught your attention this week that needs to be um, thought about, remembered, or, or, or uh, highlighted? No, the only thing that one on the U.S. side was uh, employment still tight. So um, jobless claims in the U.S. was the other one. It was slightly higher, but pretty much in line. Still, the service sector on fire mm -hmm. in the U.S. We are seeing some layoffs. We're mm -hmm. seeing that on the tech side, yeah. Disney, right? But uh, again, the, the service sector is keeping up for that. So Here, still tight. Here's my guess for the next six to seven months. Get ready for a lot more acquisitions and mergers. Mm -hmm. And I'm talking big names. Rumor has it that we had a couple of tech and and uh, I think Disney and Apple, for example. Rumor has That's it. That's a big one, yeah. AMC and Amazon. Get ready because now there's been a lot of companies been hammered in the market. Their valuations are lower. You can get growth on it. It's going to be interesting. We've had a lot of conversations with clients, with listeners and viewers of the show about travel, people wanna to continue to travel, it's high on their list of things to do, but one thing that they have a concern about is travel insurance. Mm -hmm. As people age, they have um, concerns about pre-existing conditions, they have concerns about you know, um, how much it costs, of course, and are they getting the right, the right deal out there? Right. You know, there's, there's a lot of things that, they, that are on their mind when it comes to traveling. And a lot of things have changed over the last little bit with travel, with cancellations, with sickness, and where is best? Do you go through the airline? Do you go external? All of those things. My current travel insurance, I'd say, be putting air tags in my check luggage. So that's it. Oh, really? Okay. Well, this is this is going to be an interesting topic. We got to bring on our expert here. We got uh, Christina Koch. She is the business development manager with To Go. You get a chance take a look at To Go's website. Pretty interesting uh, and overall uh, very informative. Christina, welcome uh, to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So there is uh, a lot to cover when it comes to travel insurance. And with everything that's happened since the pandemic, I believe that there are many things that are people are overlooking when they look at travel insurance. So how about you give us your view of what, what generally are people overlooking when it comes to travel insurance? The nice thing that actually happened with COVID, there aren't many, but one of the nice things is the fact that it's shone a massive light on the need for travel insurance. They're saying around 82% of people are now purchasing, which is as high as it's ever been. And that is fantastic because there are absolutely scary things when it comes to travel. And even though someone who may be financially well off, one gigantic claim could absolutely financially damage you and your family for the rest of their lives. Uh, that's how big it can be. One thing that is very much overlooked is pre-existing health conditions like you had mentioned. So when it comes to travel insurance, having to meet a stability period and having your conditions be stable in order for a company to cover them is the key thing when it comes to travel insurance. Are you eligible 
And are you stable in order for the company to actually cover that pre-existing condition? I think a lot of people forget that maybe they have a puffer in a sock drawer or forgot that they stopped taking a medication. And that's where you're going to run into denied claims is when people don't disclose that kind of information. And I'm not saying they're trying to lie, but forgetfulness and just not thinking a condition will make an effect is where people run into a problem. Christina, I think the big one that I have conversations with is that even for people that are getting back into travel and, and wanting to spend more time out of the country, where do they even look for, or what are the options out there for them to even look at? Not even, some of the clients don't even know where to start. I would absolutely suggest they talk to a financial agent, an insurance broker, um, having someone that you can bump questions off of and actually talk to is going to absolutely give you that peace of mind when it comes to purchasing travel insurance. Um, they're going to have options such as single trip plans, multi-trips, so they can go multiple times throughout the year, um, trip cancellation interruption insurance, which you had mentioned. Uh, there's a lot of delays going on in the world. I think we've all seen that in the media. Um, so having some sort of interruption insurance is where they're going to find that information and that coverage for delays. Um, there's also baggage insurance out there. Um, so making sure you have the proper coverages for what you want covered and car rental coverage. And then there's also package options, which is going to encompass all of those in one easy little package for them. Christina, when you look at a typical person trying to travel, they get, they're mentioned about travel insurance, either through their agent who they purchased the uh, package through, the, uh, the, the airline will talk about insurance, um, the credit card company talks about insurance um, when you're traveling, and there's so many different options out there. How do you sort through all the different providers and come up with the right one for you. Because what we've been telling people on this show is you've got to read the small print. If you were to look at 17 different companies with 17 different policies, uh, my eyes will go cross-eyed from reading all the small print. So how do I make sure I find the right company and the right protection for me if there's so many providers, even if it's more than three, it's more than what my brain can handle. So Christina, walk me through, how do people find the right company and the right insurance for them? I would go talk to a broker. There's actual travel insurance brokers. There's some in Calgary, Edmonton, they're all over Canada. They will specialize in just travel insurance and they will take your health conditions, your stability periods, your age, your travel length, and they will look at their top five, top 10 companies, whatever they have on their shelf. And they'll be able to go through and give you exactly what needs to be disclosed and give you some options in terms of costs. So that's what I would do. And we find that more and more people are looking for insurance online. They're buying it right off, uh, off of a website. Um, when people are looking at that, what should they be aware of and what should they be cautious about? Websites are great. I am all about purchasing online as well. But the key things that you really want to focus on, are you eligible to purchase in the first place? Because every company is going to have different eligibility requirements. And then are you stable? And every condition, sorry, every company is also going to have different stability periods based on your trip length and your age. And I would absolutely also say general exclusions. There's exclusions in the market in terms of being pregnant and traveling, or if you're on a wait list for getting your hip surgery here in Canada and you want to travel because the wait lists are so long because of COVID, 
but I want to go on vacation. No insurance company is going to cover something that's outstanding here in Canada or if you're on a wait list for something. So again, making sure you do meet the definition of stable, what those stability periods are, and then making sure eligibility, those are the main three things. And then of course, going over your exclusions, what's not covered. Rob, did you know that, that if you're on a wait list for like hip surgery or hip replacement, knee replacement, you may not be eligible for insurance? I had no idea. So this is, this is fairly new to us in this, Christina. We had no idea that if you're on a list, because many Canadians are on a list waiting to get a knee or a hip or something replaced, and our list is, or the, the lineup is long, the time frame is long, it can be years uh, before you, you can get into the top of that list. Um, like, how, how does that all work out? Like, how does an insurance company, do they actually ask that question on the application? Because I haven't seen it when I've gotten insurance, but maybe I'm missing something. Well, it actually will be under the definition of stable. The definition of stable, it says you don't, you're not on a wait list, you don't have anything outstanding. So that's why I'm saying in terms of when you purchase, looking at that definition of stable is key. That's where you're gonna find, if you're on a wait list, if you have even like outstanding blood work because there was suspicion of something going on, no insurance company is gonna cover something we don't know the results to. That's like buying house insurance when your house is burning down right? No one's going to do that. So same thing when it comes to travel insurance. If you're on a wait list or if, like you said, there's a lot of backlog when it comes to getting surgeries done or cancer treatments or a million things right now. Yeah. No one's going to cover that if we don't have it wrapped up prior to departure. That's fantastic information. Yeah. Good, good tips to everybody out there. Make sure you understand what stable is within your insurance contract. Christina, thank you for joining us this, this afternoon. You are so welcome. Thanks for having me. We've been joined by Christina Koch, Business Development Manager with To Go Insurance. It's budget week, Rob. Mm -hmm. It came out. Dominated the headlines. Dominated the headlines. I think more surprising that there was stuff missing mm -hmm. than what the stuff what was in the budget. Right. I think people were expecting either more increases in taxes, either GST or the inclusion rate on capital gains or something that didn't uh, that didn't transpire. So just, a bit of a sigh of relief for those who were expecting to pay more taxes may not be doing so. Yeah, it was just more to the deficit, right? Not on the tax side. That's right. <laughs> but there was quite a bit that was announced in this budget. And so we have Jamie Golenbeck, mm -hmm. Managing Director of Tax and Estate Planning at CIBC to give us more information. Jamie, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. All right, let's go through the, the, the budget, the key pieces that we should be aware of if you are uh, transitioning to or living in retirement. And we're also gonna talk about their adult children and some grandchildren there, so I'm gonna throw an extra one in there for you as well. Um, what parts of the budget would be most relevant to individuals in this category? Look, look, there's not a lot there, to be honest with you, in terms of tax changes that would be relevant. I mean, the only things I can think of is, of course, if you are high income, very high income, like making over $300,000 a year, we do have the introduction of a new AMT. AMT stands for Alternative of Minimum Tax. And we've had an alternative minimum tax for, for decades now, um, but the government was concerned that it's not attracting enough tax uh, what it really is, is a parallel system. So we have a normal ordinary tax system where you calculate your taxable income, you take deductions and various credits, come up with your regular tax. Then there's actually a parallel system that's working behind the scenes called an alternative minimum tax. 
to make sure that everyone pays at least a minimum amount of tax every single year. And what it does is it adjusts your income for various items and then disallows certain uh, credits and things like that. So the government has uh, announced that starting next year in 2024 for very high income people, and they're saying that really 99% of the people that will be affected make over $300,000 a year. But it's not just people that make like salary income or, or employment income, right? Uh, Self-employment income, business income. It really is if you have tra tax preferred income or certain deductions. So I'm thinking things like Canadian dividends, where you get the dividend tax credit. I'm thinking things like capital gains, which are only 50% taxable. I'm thinking deductions like flow through shares, you know, very specific items. And then what you're going to do is recalculate your tax under this new system. And in which case, uh, you may owe a bit of minimum tax starting next year. Um, the good news is, though, that you can get it back if your regular tax exceeds minimum tax in any of the future seven years. So I don't I don't think this is a big deal to talk about. I don't think it affects very few people. You have to be high income and you have to have a lot of preferred income to be caught by those new rules. When you look at um, our people who are in that age category that are transitioning to or living in retirement, many of them have adult children that are going to be first-time homebuyers, or they've got grandchildren who are now going to become first-time homebuyers. They're concerned about this. They're worried about the, the how expensive it is to get into a home in this, in this country, in certain parts of this country. There's a program that's come out. Uh, tell us more about the first home savings account. Yeah, so the FHSA is really excited. I mean, in the budget, the only thing they announce is that Financial institutions are, are able to proceed with the launch of the FHA as soon as April the 1st, which is, of course, <laughs> this weekend. The truth is that very few, if any, financial institutions will be ready yet. Uh, there's been a lot of behind the scenes programming that needs to be done uh, in consultation with the CRA. But, you know, in the months ahead, I think most financial institutions will offer the first home savings account. And it really is the best of both worlds. Because what it does is it marries the advantages of the RSP with the TFSA. You're going to be able to contribute $8,000 a year for up to five years. That's $40,000 into the FHSA. This is for a first-time home buyer. Have the money grow tax-free for 15 years. And then within 15 years, take that money out, all the income, all the growth, all the contributions, tax-free, uh, just like a TFSA. So this is a great opportunity for first-time home buyers, which means anyone who hasn't owned a home in the current year and the previous four calendar years. But it's also a wonderful opportunity for many of our clients that are parents and grandparents that want to help their own kids and grandkids save up for their first home because you're able to gift cash to your kids or grandkids once they're 18 years of age so let's say you gift them $8,000 a year. They can then take that money and contribute to their own FHSA. And the best is that they can actually decide to defer claiming a deduction till a later year. So you might have an 18-year-old that's still in grade 12 that has no income. So you give them 8000 they put it into their FHSA. And then 10 years down the road, when they're making income, they can choose to claim the $8,000 deduction. And maybe they'll buy a home within that 15-year period and take it all out tax-free. So the system works really well. And I think will be a big part of a gifting strategy going forward for parents and grandparents, uncles and aunts, to be able to provide for kids, nieces and nephews to help them save for that initial down payment.
Jimmy, when you look at the first-time home buyers, you're going to have some skeptics out there saying, hang on, this sounds too good to be true. Can't anybody just put money in this in this program, even if they are not a first-time home buyer? How will the government know who's offside and who's not offside with, with a program like this? Yeah, so again, remember in Canada, we have a self-assessment system. You have to certify at the time of uh, establishing the FHSA and making your contribution that you qualify as a first-time home buyer. So there's a form you got to fill us out and uh, assuming that uh, you know the CRA audits you you could be in big trouble uh, if you determine that you are not a first-time home buyer so the rules are pretty strict and I think the financial institutions will also be asking people to certify that they qualify before opening up uh, such a plan. Jamie just on the other side of that what if you open up do the do the program you know get 40,000 built into this and never buy a home? Well, uh, that's no problem, believe it or not. And we actually pointed this out to the government when the consultations were happening last summer. And we said, you realize that this is giving all permanent renters an extra $40,000 of RSP room, which they did acknowledge and they didn't change it. So you're, there is actually no downside. So you save for $40,000 over five years, you grow that to 80,000 or 100,000 at the end of 15 years, or by the time you're 71, whichever comes first, you just take that entire amount you roll it into your RSP or RIF. You don't have to use up contribution room. You've now just bought yourself additional registered plan room. So I think this is a no-lose scenario that I can think of for anyone that qualifies as a first-time home buyer. Jimmy, there was conversation about a dental program, Universal Dental, coming into the country. 2024 is what we're hearing about it. Don't know how much information's out there yet, but we're hearing about this program, about a certain level of income, $90,000 or less and you qualify for, for dental. Give us a bit more information for what, what you understand about the, the program coming in. Yeah, so so, so we already ha had the launch of this program, you know, for, for younger kids, right, last year, the dental benefit. And uh, we don't have a lot of details on how this new program is gonna roll out. But you have to remember, this coverage is really meant for lower or middle income families under $90,000 of income. Um, but it's also meant for anyone who doesn't have the coverage already. So again, for anyone who's an employee, most employees are covered through some type of work basic dental plan. Um, so this is really trying to capture the people that don't have any of this insurance through their work. So we want to talk about strategy. Let's talk about some ideas, some tips, some pieces of advice on how people can benefit the most out, yeah. of, this, out of this budget. And we're joined with Jamie Goldenbeck, Managing Director of Tax and Estate Planning at CIBC. Jamie, welcome back. My pleasure. Okay, let's start off with... Um, a lot of our clients, a lot of Canadians, um, as they see the prices of homes go up, they are concerned about the generations after them, their children, their grandchildren. How are they going to be able to afford a home? One program that the government has talked about uh, and has introduced is the first home savings account. We kind of went through some of the details, um, but you kind of gave us a bit of a... a a tip, the last segment, I want to reiterate that. This is an opportunity for everybody to participate to help first-time homebuyers. Walk us through what an, a parent, a grandparent can do to help their child, grandchild get into their first home. So one of the challenges that most young people have in their 20s or, or even beyond that is to be able to come up with enough money as a down payment uh, to be able to buy their first home or condo or townhouse or whatever it is. 
Um, this brand new first home savings account, which will launch at some point in 2023, depending on when it's ready from the various financial institutions, is a wonderful way to, for parents and grandparents to really help kickstart uh, their child or grandchild's a down payment strategy. So there's a number of ways that people currently fund a down payment. Um, people do use the RSP home buyers plan. Now that is a plan that allows every individual to contribute to an RSP, claim deductions for retirement, but then borrow effectively interest-free up to $35,000 from their RSP under the home buyers plan, and they'd pay it back over 15 years with no interest. The good news is that the recent final legislation will allow Canadians to take advantage of both the home buyers plan and the NERV First Home Savings Account. So, you know, as parents and grandparents, we could be encouraging or perhaps giving money uh, to our kids uh, to help them open up this new First Home Savings Account while that child is still perhaps contributing on their own, depending on their income, depending on their job, to an RSP. Then they could use that as well in the Home Buyers Plan. And again, many young people are in fact not even doing RSPs, they're doing tax-free savings accounts instead which again is another source of down payment cash flow. And we have many of our clients as well that are helping kids fund their own TFSAs by gifting $6,500 a year this year to each child over the age of 18. So that child can then take that money and put it into a tax-free savings account. So really, I think if you think about it, if you have an opportunity there with a parent or grandparent who has excess cash, they're paying maybe tax at high rates. What a great opportunity to give $8,000 for an FHSA contribution for each kid or grandkid once they're 18, and maybe another $6,500 for each kid or grandkid when they're 18. And then both of those funds could be used in conjunction when it comes time to buy their first home. TFSA anytime, the FHSA, you've got a 15 year window. Here's where I think the strategy needs to come into play, Jamie. Um, when you look at what most Canadians do when they gift their child or grandchild money, it's an ad hoc, right before the purchase, here we go, let's just start to dispose of some of my assets, potentially triggering more tax, and then pass those assets on for a down payment or a gift. Here's an opportunity to now plan for this periodically, methodically reducing your tax exposure. And, and so when, when, when we in the financial industry have these discussions, we should be planning for gifting of, of sorts like this. We should know that our clients are looking or have that value system that they want to gift. And then it doesn't just stop there, it's the implementation. So for all of my peers in the industry, when they are told by their client, I wanna support my child or grandchild with their first home. What's the strategy they should look at, they meaning our peers in the industry, with all these different vehicles to reach their goals, TFSA, first home savings account, RSP. What should the advisor or the planner do to help these clients out? Well, I think the most important thing is to really have that discussion and bring in the kids once they're 18 into that discussion. Uh, form a relationship between the advisor and the parent, which you already have, but also with that next generation. Because you really want everyone sitting around the table and say, look, hey, mom and dad, we want to help you uh, save for this down payment. You know, if you're willing to save 
let's say five thousand a year, maybe the parent matches that by another five thousand dollars. So in other words, it's an opportunity to have this great open and broad discussion with that next generation, maybe introducing them into the advisory relationship, and then maybe come up with a coherent strategy with the help of the financial advisor as to what is the right way to do. Do we do RSPs or do we do TFSAs? Uh, it depends on what our tax rate is now, what our tax rate will be later on. Uh, do we want to use the home buyer's plan under the RSP? Or are we going to simply take the money out under the TFSA? In both cases, the new first home savings account will trump both of those, presumably that you're going to buy a home within 15 years. But even if you don't buy a home within 15 years, as we said, there's no downside because that money can just roll into the RSP. So if I really had to summarize and prioritize, number one for sure, it's FHSAs because you get the deduction and then no tax later on. And then number two is either home buyers plan RSP or TFSA. And that comes to our classic discussion that we've had many times on the show is what's your tax rate now and what's your expected tax rate in retirement? One thing that we'll be hearing more about is this dental program that's going to come into play. It'll be available to seniors um, at some point. Um, the conversation that we're hearing about is a certain income threshold, $90,000 of income or less. There are many Canadians who can plan in their retirement to make sure that their income levels are at that level. So they're getting these types of benefits and still meeting their lifestyle costs. So they're not, they're not taking a hit just to get free dental. Um, they're, they're able to kind of kill two birds in one stone. There are ways to reduce your income as you transition to retirement from a personal income tax perspective off the top of your head. Give us a couple of tips on what people should look at in order to reduce their income or the taxable income so they can qualify for programs like this in the future. Yeah, so again, I mean, what you really wanna do is make sure that you're of course maximizing all your registered plans. So to the extent that you're able to, all your investing could be done perhaps in a tax sheltered environment. Whether it's inside, you're maximizing your RSP every year, you're maximizing your tax-free savings account, you're doing the register education savings plan uh, you know, for those kids so that all that investment income doesn't show up on your tax return, right? It's not included in that $90,000. It's all sheltered. And then only when you start withdrawing it later on uh, do you pay tax on it. So that's certainly a great idea. And obviously, uh, to the extent that you have maximized everything, you want to be tax efficient with your investment income in terms of the types of income that you're earning, or maybe you're not earning any income every year, but you're only invested in capital gains. Remember capital gains, only 50% of them are included in our taxable income. So even if you've got a great rate of return, only half of it is taxable, which means that the amount that you actually realize, and you don't realize them every year, you realize them only when you sell, can be a great way of keeping your income uh, below, let's say a $90,000 threshold for years to come. There you go. You've heard it from Jamie Golenbeck. Three key points, plan, strategy, mm -hmm. and implement. Those three things. Jamie, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thanks, guys. We've been joined by Jamie Golenbeck, Managing Director of Tax and Estate Planning at CIBC. Rob, we've got our upcoming seminar talking about plan, strategy, and implementation. Mm -hmm. When is our next seminar? You got it. Next one coming up Tuesday, April 25th, 7 p.m. in person. This will be at the Carriage House Inn. Go to morethanmoneyradio.com to register. I want to thank Rob for, for filling in for Dave Popovich. And for, uh, thank you to all of you for joining us on another episode of uh, More Than Money on QR Calgary. We'll see you next week.
David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli are portfolio managers and investment advisors with CIBC Woodgundy in Calgary. The views of David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli do not necessarily reflect those of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Clients are advised to seek advice regarding their particular circumstances from their personal tax and legal advisors. If you are currently a CIBC Woodgundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Woodgundy is a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc., a subsidiary of CIBC and a member of the Canadian Investor Protection Fund and Investment Industry Regulatory Organization of Canada.